So we're continuing our look at what lies ahead, and as we uh, go through the material uh, this morning, we're going to shift into a really exciting new section of this study. Uh, it actually constitutes one chapter in the book. In fact, let me go ahead and mention um, uh, the book, uh, What Lies Ahead. Uh, I know many of you have already gotten this. If you haven't, it's available online at notbyworks.org at the store. Uh, use coupon code WLA if you're here in the church. It's available on the back table. Uh, but uh, really, a pretty beefy book. Again, 350 pages, all kinds of charts and graphs, uh, 16 chapters. Um, study questions at the end of each chapter. We're not strictly following chapter by chapter in our uh, video series here, our Sunday morning Bible study, um, but all of the material we will get to eventually. And the great thing about it is I'm pretty sure I agree with everything in here. So that's, that's, always, a, that's always a plus. While we're talking about books, I'm going to do one other shameless plug, but I have an important reason for that. And that is my newest book, Top Ten Reasons, uh, was nominated by our publisher, I think, uh, as the, the best theology book of the year in the Independent Publishing Association organization. And what's significant about that is this book absolutely clearly tells the gospel. I mean, cover to cover, it starts out in the preface with the gospel. All ten chapters deal with the gospel from a different angle, and then there's an afterword that gives the gospel. And if this book were to win that uh, award, it's going to just make it that much more uh, uh, broadly read and broadly uh, uh, you know, publicized and so forth. So I need your help. Voting is still uh, available. If you go to our website, the simplest thing to do is go to the notbyworks.org website right there on the scrolling highlight carousel. I think it's the second or third one that comes up. You'll see a reference to the, the uh, CIPA, Christian Indie Publishing Association Award. Click on that link. It tells you how to vote, and we need you to vote for this uh, book. And if you haven't read it, that's okay. Just take my word for it. It's great. So, um, but uh, there, unfortunately, there are 17 categories, and the theology category is number 17. So you have to scroll all the way through all the other categories to get to number 17. But you don't have to vote for the other categories. You're certainly willing to or welcome to if you'd like to. But you can just skip right through them, get to number 17, find top 10 reasons, say, this is, this is my vote, and then submit, and, and you're done. And so we're praying that the Lord will use that and appreciate your help there. But we are coming to this new section today on, essentially, what does Jesus have to say about his return? What does Jesus say about the end times? And we'll probably spend several weeks on this because it's a section of Scripture that is often appealed to and looked at, and people know parts of it, but it's very frequently taken out of context and misunderstood. Already in our study, we've looked at several references from uh, the section that we're going to be talking about from Jesus' teaching in the Gospels uh, and touched on them in passing, but I want to do a real concentrated uh, study of that. Still much more to come. We want to get into more details about the tribulation. We want to get into details about the millennium and second coming and the new heavens and the new earth. There's so much uh, end times prophecy that falls into that 16% of scripture that hasn't been fulfilled yet. Um, but this is a this is a big section and it's an important section. And like I said, even though it only occupies one chapter in the book, What Lies Ahead, it's worth uh, spending several uh, sessions on here. So a reminder to uh, feel free to raise your hand with questions. We will do another 
dedicated question and answer time here in a couple of weeks, two or three weeks maybe. Uh, we did that last week. If you weren't here or if you're watching online and you'd like to go back and watch that video or listen to that podcast, the Q&A sessions in this series, we've done two of them now, two dedicated ones, always get the most views and the most listens. I think people really enjoy uh, hearing from you more than they enjoy hearing from me. And that doesn't hurt my feelings. Uh, I'm trying to get over it. But uh, those sessions are actually uh, very well uh, uh, listen to because I think people enjoy the discussion. So go back and watch that if you haven't. We'll do another one coming up. Uh, but today this is the 14th installment in this series, What Lies Ahead. And we're going to camp out here for a few weeks calling it What Jesus Said uh, About the End Times. So the section of scripture that we're talking about when we talk about Jesus' teaching is called the Olivet Discourse. Now why do we call it the Olivet Discourse? Anybody know? Because he taught it from the Mount of Olives, right. So it's one of those fancy terms, and years ago I was teaching on this in some conference, and somebody came up to me and said, you really need to explain what the Olivet Discourse means. And I thought, okay, that's a good point. You know, it, sometimes you just say these churchy words and people don't know what they mean, like Upper Room Discourse or Olivet Discourse. But yeah, uh, the, uh, we're going to talk about the timing of it in a moment, but during the last week of Jesus' life, uh, on the top of Mount of Olives, he gathered together his disciples and he gave uh, what is the most comprehensive blow-by-blow -blow teaching on his return found anywhere in the Bible. That, that's pretty amazing. You know, you think about all the Old Testament passages. We spent several weeks in Daniel. Uh, you think about the book of Revelation. Uh, but this is really uh, a, a, an excellent uh, section. And uh, it's found in the three synoptic Gospels. What do we mean by the synoptic Gospels? Anybody know? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That's right. So the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptics. And what does that term mean? Or what, what, what's the significance of calling them the synoptic Gospels? Anybody know? Synopsis. <laughs> well, we get the word... The synopsis is similar to synoptic, and, and I'll clarify that in a second, but yeah. They're synchronized, kind of. Synchronized. So it's, it's one big synchronicity, is that, that what you're saying? They go together. They go together, exactly. So you said it, S-Y-N, Greek for with, optic, Greek for see, so seen with or seen together. So the first three Gospels essentially repeat a lot of the same material, but they do it from different vantage points. So they are seen together, they, they go together, they're, they're very similar in terms of their flow and pattern. But remember, gospel literature is not strictly speaking narrative literature, historical narrative. It is historical, but unlike a historical narrative portion of Scripture, say like First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, in the, in the New Testament, what's the only purely historical narrative book? Acts. Acts, exactly right. Unlike Acts, the Gospels take selected events from the life and ministry of Christ, and they organize them uh, in, in a theological manner, to make a theological point, targeting a particular audience. So they are generally speaking uh, chronological, in, in the sense that they start with the birth and end with the passion, the, the death and resurrection. But within in the middle, they're not necessarily in chronological order. They're, they're put together to make a point. 
so uh, these are uh, the, the synoptic gospels. Each one, each gospel writer takes these selected events from the life and ministry of Christ and, and targets a different audience. For example, Matthew is targeting a Jewish audience, very plainly. Uh, Mark is targeting a, a Gentile but more Roman audience. And then uh, Luke is a Gentile audience, and Luke is focusing on a more the uh, uh, humanity of Christ. He gives us the more detailed birth narrative and so on and so forth. So, uh, so when it comes to the Olivet Discourse, all three of these synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke included, it's in Matthew 24 and 25, which we're going to make our primary text as we study this. And then, but it's also in Mark 13 and Luke uh, 21. So it's repeated in there. Um, and I'll probably, uh, now that I think about it, I'll probably give you some handouts as we go through this, just supplemental to kind of help, because uh, I've got one sheet that's color-coded that I often use that, that sort of uh, overlays the three passages from Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, and shows you kind of the, the flow of thought. So, uh, so this is what lies ahead, an overview of the Olivet Discourse. Now, a few weeks ago when we looked at Daniel chapter 9, we talked about the chronology of Christ's final week. And I think it's helpful in connection with this teaching to kind of put it in historical context as well. So this will seem familiar from what we talked about before, but it bears repeating. Uh, so on Saturday, March 28, 33 AD, Christ arrived in Bethany. Uh, he's uh, interacting with the crowds on that Sunday, the 29th. And then on Monday, he heads into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey in the triumphal entry in fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. A splattering of uh, Jews cried out, uh, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, in fulfillment of that um, Matthew uh, uh, 18, or I mean, uh, Psalm 118 passage, but not in, in ultimate fulfillment. That really won't happen until the nation does the same thing on the day uh, of the Lord when He returns. Remember, uh, Psalm 118 says, This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in Him, speaking of the second coming and the nation of Israel. Um, but that's also where we get the, the uh, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, but those few people that greeted Him uh, in that way uh, really very quickly turned to hostile majority crowds who, within a matter of days, were crying, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas. If you remember, if you remember that, of course you do. Uh, then on uh, Tuesday, we have the uh, temple confrontation. Well, first he curses the fig tree, then he overturns the tables of the money changers. Uh, things are intensifying. As a direct outflow of that, of that confrontation, the disciples, as we're going to see in just a moment, ask some questions, which I believe is essentially one question. I'll explain that in a moment. And Jesus' answer to their question is the Olivet Discourse. So this is Wednesday. So remember, the next day, Jesus meets with the disciples to celebrate the Passover, institutes the Lord's Supper, washes the disciples' feet in the upper room. Then he goes to the garden where he's betrayed and uh, arrested and tried, and by Friday morning, April 3rd of that week, he's laid in the tomb. And uh, I've mentioned uh, that in the Hebrew culture, the phrase three days and three nights refers to any part of a day, any part of a night. Uh, there is a handout at the back left over from our study of Daniel 
that uh, makes that case. It's a two-page front and back single sheet handout. Uh, three days and three nights does not mean the same thing in Hebrew as it does in English. We hear it in English, we think 72 hours, right? That's the way we would describe it, right? If you uh, booked a cruise for three days and three nights, and they uh, checked you in at 11 o'clock p.m. Friday night and had you get out at 12.01 Sunday morning just after midnight, you'd, be, you'd feel cheated, right? But that's not the way it works in, uh, in Hebrew culture. So indeed, uh, as with the historical record that for church, throughout church history, this has been the view, and it certainly comports with the biblical teaching. Jesus was laid in the tomb early on Friday morning, and by Sunday morning, he had resurrected. And then the next 50 days, starting with April 5th, we have uh, 40 days of resurrection appearances, appearing to literally thousands of people. Of course, the day of the resurrection, he appeared to several uh, people. And then uh, uh, on the 14th, he ascends to the right hand of the throne of God, the throne in waiting where he is to this day, waiting uh, to come back and inaugurate the kingdom and the culmination of all things, as Daniel talked about in Daniel 9. And then uh, 10 days later, the, the church was born on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached his famous Pentecost sermon, 3,000 souls were saved, and thus began the church. We can prove biblically that the, indeed that's when the church began because later on in the book of Acts, several passages uh, kind of taken together, and then you get to 1 Corinthians, show us that first of all, um, Jesus in Acts 1, had predicted the baptism of the Holy Spirit would come. In Acts 2, the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens. In Acts 11, Peter calls that baptism and that move of the Holy Spirit a beginning, begging the question, beginning of what? Uh, Paul tells us that baptism formed a body, and then Paul also tells us that body is the church. So the church was formed at Pentecost, which is called the beginning of uh, the church. Uh, so again, uh, here we are, Wednesday, April 1st, 33 A.D. It's the pivotal moment in Christ's earthly ministry. Uh, three and a half years of uh, time spent on earth, performing miracles, announcing who he was. Um, and uh, many people believed in him, but many people, namely the Jewish leaders and scribes and Pharisees, rejected him. Uh, but uh, on this Wednesday, he gives the most comprehensive overview of end times events found uh, anywhere in Scripture. He answers really the most basic question on the minds of the disciples. We're going to look at the text in a moment, but I just want to sort of set the context for you a little bit. Basically what they want to know is when will the kingdom come? What signs uh, should we look for? So I'll resist the urge to kind of talk more about that context because I want to look at the text when we're doing it. But that's the question that he is seeking uh, to answer. So before we get to the text, we want to point out some foundational principles. Um, first of all, Scripture has to be interpreted in its literal, grammatical, historical context, the way words were intended to be interpreted. Uh, often this passage gets allegorized or spiritualized um, more than many others. It's, it's because it's so powerful and profound, just like the book of Daniel was, that people who don't believe the authority of Scripture have a tendency to gloss over it. Or people that don't understand end times prophecy the way we believe the Bible teaches it, in order to make their case and defend their view, they have to gloss over this and spiritualize it or allegorize it. 
who knows what I mean by spiritualizing the text? What, what's, I want to make sure I'm communicating. Yeah. I think you mean like turning it into a spiritual meaning like, for example, this is Christ <coughs> reigning in our hearts and stuff. Yeah, good, it's yeah. A so, spiritual allegory. Exactly, spiritualizing an allegory, same idea, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's exactly. Yeah, basing your interpretation, you're exactly right, both of you, on feelings, on um, you know, sort of reading between the lines, sort of extracting from the biblical text a meaning that originates in your mind rather than with the words on the page. And you're right. Today, a lot of today's preaching is done that way. In fact, there's a famous saying, I forget who said it, but I've used it often, that said most preaching today, if the biblical text had a cold, the preacher would never catch it. <laughs> That's how far what they're preaching is from the biblical text. And so uh, it's often, I often call it the goosebump approach to Scripture. Rather than just letting the words plainly speak, which is the way language must be intended, must be interpreted. There's no other way language works if the reader or the listener gets to determine the meaning, right? So who determines meaning? The speaker, the author, right? Um, so when the quill hit the sheepskin, the divine author, capital A, God, the creator of the universe, intended to communicate something to us. And he didn't do it in a mystical complex, weird way where we've got to, you know, get out the calculators and figure out the Bible code and go to the CIA and use their top, you know, people that can decipher stuff. You know, we just look at the words and what do they say? And that's what they mean. It's pretty plain and it's pretty simple. Um, so spiritualizing the text really became popular, you know, back in the early days of the church, actually, back in the third century, it was already creeping in. And I think I've mentioned this previously in the series, but it might be worth mentioning because we're picking up new people you know, watching and listening to this all along. But if you remember, we established quite clearly that both the Old Testament and New Testament alike teach and anticipate a literal kingdom, a literal brick-and-mortar kingdom with a throne and a temple and a boundaries and a, a geographic kingdom over which Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, would rule and reign. And, you know, there's no way you can read any of the Bible, Old or New Testament alike, and come away with anything but a literal expectation of a kingdom. I mean, the disciples wanted to know where they would sit in the kingdom, who would be the greatest in the kingdom. One of the disciples' mothers, you know, asked the Lord, can my son sit on your right and your left? And, you know, Jesus promised them that they would sit on 12 thrones and they would get positions of service and they'd be put in charge of different things. You go to the Old Testament and clearly as David was promised this kingdom, he was promised a throne and a temple and geography, you know, geographical boundaries. So it's not until after the first century when the Bible was complete and people continued to look for the return of Christ because they believed what Jesus said and what the apostles said. But when he didn't come back generation after generation, their hope began to wane. And then uh, Origen was really the first one, the first church father, to sort of 
promote the idea of a spiritualized allegorical interpretation. He's known as the father of allegorical interpretation. And then uh, Augustine came along in the 400s and he wrote his book City of God, which essentially allegorized the whole Bible and turned the kingdom into this kingdom now spiritualized concept. Well, then we had the dark age. We had a thousand years or more of Roman Catholic dominance. And during that time, most people couldn't read the Bible. They didn't have copies. And if they were caught with one, they were often uh, persecuted because only the Roman Catholic Church could tell you what the Bible meant. Only the priests uh, could had reason to read the Bible. And they practiced during that time a Bible study method, a, a methodology called in the Latin census plenior, census plenior, which sounds, which means, and it's easy to remember because it sounds like it in English, um, fullest sense or, yeah, census plenior, the plenary or fullest sense, a fuller sense, the deeper meaning, the hidden meaning. And so what they would do to, to defend their view that the kingdom is now, we're all living it, he's reigning in our hearts, as someone said, um, was to say, well, you, the way you interpret Bible is you got to look for the fuller sense. You know, you got to really, you got to just really sort of divine, if you will, the meaning. And it's not so much the words on the page, it's what does it mean to you? And so that gave rise to all sorts of bizarre interpretation. And even to this day, uh, people, particularly from a covenant theology uh, background, tend to interpret Scripture that way. So they see symbols behind everything. And, um, and yet that's, we have no valid justification to do that. If we, can, if, if we get to determine what the text means, then it can mean anything. It can mean whatever we want it to mean. And that's what people do today. They say, well, you know, uh, I know the Bible seems to speak against, for example, homosexuality, but what it really means is, you know, and then they start to twist the meaning of it. So we want to interpret the Olivet Discourse in its literal, grammatical, historical context. That means that, like all of Scripture and like all of language, meaning is derived from the grammar, the syntax, the subjects, the nouns, the verbs, the adjectives, so forth, uh, in its context in its plain literal meaning. Now, literal meaning does not preclude the use of figures of speech. Uh, we use figures of speech, as does every language, all the time. In fact, I just used one, didn't I? Hyperbole. Do we literally use figures of speech all the time? No, there are times we don't use figures of speech, but that's a figure of speech, right? So, um, in, uh, in my Bible study methods class that I teach, which we're, by the way, we're, we're be on the lookout. We're hoping to offer an online version of that here in the coming month or two. We're working hard putting that together. Um, but I go through dozens of figures of speech that are used in Scripture and show you how clearly they are figures of speech. This is not rocket science. You, you can understand the literal meaning of something even when a figure of speech is being employed. Okay. So a figure of speech does not mean, is not the opposite of literal interpretation. The opposite of literal interpretation is allegorical interpretation. Literal interpretation just means understanding the meaning in its plain, normal sense, the way words were intended uh, to be understood. Sometimes that includes figures of speech. You know, When uh, Jesus says, I am the door, that's a figure of speech. That's pretty clear. When an inanimate object is used to... Uh, describe a human being or a person that you know that's a 
the figure of speech. And there are a lot of other rules for figures of speech as well. Uh, so that's an important thing to remember as we go through this text in the coming uh, sessions. Uh, number two, and we've already talked about this, but a foundational principle is that the church and Israel are distinct groups in God's plan of the ages. Now this flows from the first bullet point there. Because of the literal, grammatical, historical understanding of Scripture, the church cannot be the same thing as Israel. The church has not replaced Israel in God's plan. God has a future for national Israel. Uh, if he did not, then the Old Testament is lying. Okay. And, of course, if you practice census plenior or this allegorical interpretation, you just go back to the Old Testament and make them mean something completely different. And so then you say, see, it's okay. But you can't go back and change meaning from what it meant to the original audience. And uh, then number three, the prophecies related to Israel's future have not been fulfilled. They've not gotten their kingdom. They've not gotten their land. They've not gotten their temple described by the prophet Ezekiel. They've certainly not gotten their king, the Messiah. Uh, so they've not, uh, they've not received these prophecies, and we believe they, uh, if you understand Scripture in just plain literal sense, are yet future. So another uh, important thing to remember, and I uh, don't think we've talked about this before, but there are essentially three basic approaches to interpreting Bible prophecy today. If you were to just you know, ask around or look at the literature or look at you know, what's out there, and uh, as uh, I think it was Jamin that said, there's all kinds of junk out there, no question about it, um, you'll find essentially one of these three views represented. So I've put a rudimentary timeline there at the bottom just to kind of keep it in uh, to kind of pinpoint some dates and the question then is when uh, are the prophetic portions of scripture fulfilled well one view is called the preterist view that essentially says everything was fulfilled by 70 a.d and this is particularly relevant to the olivet discourse because jesus is speaking in the lead-up to it in chapter 23 in his discussion with the disciples that prompted this teaching, Jesus is uh, talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. and the destruction of the temple. So many people uh, erroneously conclude that all of prophecy, including the second coming, was fulfilled in 70 A.D. And if you're wondering how was the second coming fulfilled second AD and how did I miss it well first of all you weren't around then but it, if you if you really are interested in the second coming and I think we all are kind of like to know if it already happened well they say that the the uh, the smoke and flames that were rising above Jerusalem when the Roman general Titus rode in and destroyed the city there uh, that symbolically again allegorical interpretation, census plenty, are symbolically fulfilled the prophecies of Scripture that speak of cosmic signs in the book of Revelation and in the Olivet Discourse and in the Old Testament, like Joel, where lightning will flash from the east to the west and incredible earthquakes will take place and all these physical signs that will accompany his return. They interpret that spiritually to mean the visible results of this storming of Jerusalem and ransacking the city. Well, that's, I mean, that's absurd, I, I think, on its face, but that's how they can get away with saying that it's all already been done. So now we're just enjoying the kingdom. This is it. I hope you enjoy it. This is the kingdom, and, uh, and uh, you know, good luck, right? 
Uh, so we reject that. Yeah, a couple of questions. Did you have a question? You have a question? Um, what is the name preterist? What does that mean? Past. Past. Like in, uh, in grammar, you have the preterist tense and the past tense, both meaning occurred in the past. Good question. Did someone else? Nope. Okay. So that's one view, and we reject that view. We respect those who hold it as, you know, people. We're not personally attacking them or calling them ugly or insulting their mother. We're just saying they're wrong, okay? And we think they're wrong because the Bible doesn't teach that. Uh, but we're not personally attacking them. Um, the second view is called the historicist view. And this is a view that a lot of us have a kindred spirit with and we sort of appreciate. And I even share the stage with many of them at conferences uh, that, that have some of these tendencies. Uh, the the Mid-America Prophecy Conference that I speak at each year, which is coming up in May this year, uh, it, although it's not, a, not known as a sort of uh, sensationalist type of conference, I have witnessed speakers there who do tend to uh, look at the newspaper first and the headlines first and the Bible second. But basically, the colloquial way to refer to these uh, prophecy teachers is date setters. Okay, so it's, you know, the Jack Van Impey's of the world, the, um, uh, you know, uh, Hal Lindsay's, people like that, who in the overall framework, we might agree with them in the sense that the ultimate fulfillment is literal. Christ is going to come back and literally rule and reign. There's going to be a literal rapture before the second coming. A lot of, lot of common ground there. The difference is they think there are prophecies being fulfilled today. In other words, they say we're living inside the bubble of fulfillment today. So, you know, they get excited when they see things happening and they take Scripture out of context like Psalm 83 and say this is being fulfilled today. This battle is happening today. Gog and Magog is going to happen before the rapture. And they put all of these um, prophetic events before the rapture. And so again, they, every time there's an earthquake, they point to a scripture and say, see, this is the fulfillment of that. And half the time, the passages they're pointing to aren't even prophetic. Like Psalm 83 is not even prophetic. It's not, there's nothing in the psalm, if you read it just plain value without bringing your suppositions to the text, that would make you think it's a prophecy. It's not a prophecy at all. So uh, again, we, we are more comfortable running in these circles, but we still reject a little bit of the sensationalist approach. Does that make sense? Anybody have questions about what we mean by the historicist view that, that we're living in? So th another example of the historicist view would be in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus' letters to the seven churches. How many of you have heard the view, or maybe even assumed this view, uh, that each of those churches represent eras in, in church history? Anybody heard that view? Okay. Can you show me from the text where you get that view? You cannot. <laughs> so that, that's just something that's an interesting coincidence. It's interesting to kind of make the parallels, but that's pure speculation. The text doesn't tell us that. That's something that originated up here. That's a historicist understanding of Revelation 2 and 3. Would this be people that... Get excited about blood moon stuff. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So the comment was, would this include the people that are interested in the blood moons? And yeah, the Shemitahs. Jonathan Kahn is, is, is the poster child for the historicist view. Um, and so I, I did a lecture several years ago. 
it's not a video, um, but it's on our, our website called the the blood something to the effect of the blood moon and Shemitah hysteria. And I went scripture by scripture to show the passages that Jonathan Kahn and Bill Salas and some of these others, again, who I respect, they love the Lord, they're godly men, not questioning their integrity or their uh, pers person, you know, attacking them personally, just have an honest disagreement with how they handle scripture. But I showed that, you know, the Shemitah is nothing but an agricultural concept that has nothing to do with end times prophecy. Blood moons likewise don't have anything to do with end times prophecy. So, yeah, that would be the same, you know, the same uh, group there. So, uh, that's the historicist view, and then the, we reject that view. But the view that we hold is called the futurist view. The futurist view. We believe that all of the 16% of the Bible, the 1-6 roughly speaking, um, that has not been fulfilled is yet future. And that the next great prophetic event to which the world looks forward is the rapture. That's the reason if you go to the back of what lies ahead, see if I can find it, uh, in the appendix, there's a scripture index, which is great. If you just kind of wonder, do I touch on any particular scripture, you can look it up and find the page where I deal with it. But on page 327, there's an appendix called Sequential Order of End Times Events. And I list uh, how many events here? 33 events. And it's not exhaustive, just 33 key events. But what do you think is the number one event on, on this list? Rapture. The rapture. That's right. Because that's the next great prophetic event. And there's nothing that has to happen before the rapture. And as historicists do, if you were to put anything before the rapture, you've destroyed imminency. Because now we can say, well, the rapture's not going to happen today because this prophecy hasn't happened yet. And Psalm 83 hasn't happened. And this hasn't happened. Um, but we believe the rapture comes next, and it's a signless event. We talked about that uh, several sessions ago in the What Lies Ahead uh, series on the imminency of the rapture, meaning it could happen at any moment. Nothing has to happen before it. So that's our approach. That's what I believe is the accurate approach to studying Bible prophecy, and that applies to the Olivet Discourse, which is Bible prophecy. So uh, we understand it as being Jesus referring to future events, specifically his second coming. And that leads us to another very important underlying premise, and that is that the Olivet Discourse is wholly, entirely, completely Jewish in nature. The Olivet Discourse is completely Jewish uh, in nature. It does not have anything to do with the church. The church had not been... Uh, born yet uh, remember we went through the timeline the church was birthed on may 14th 33 a.d um, this is march whatever we said the first i think uh, 33 a.d um, so uh, or march 30th march april 1st excuse me april 1st thank you april 1st to 33 a.d uh, <clears throat> secondly if the church is not referenced in here that means the rapture is not referenced in here and as we talked about in our study of the rapture, the first inkling of the rapture, which, uh, what's, what do we mean by the rapture? What does that event refer to? Somebody tell me. Yeah. Being caught up in the clouds with Jesus. Being caught up in, to meet the Lord in the clouds. Who? The Who? The church, right? Believers of the present age. Exactly right. So the first inkling 
anywhere from you know that the divine creator of the universe unveiled revealed to the earth ever made was the next day on thursday in the upper room uh, april 2nd when jesus member told the disciples you know uh, uh, and you jim quoted it yesterday in the funeral um in the uh, be not be of good cheer i've overcome the world in this world you have trouble uh, if I go to prepare a place, I'm conflating several passages there, but John 14, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go again, I will come again, that where I am, you may be also. So he's talking about the rapture. Now, he didn't spell it out. He didn't give a lot of details. We don't get that for 20 years, when, until 20 years later, when Paul, writing to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians, gives us the blow-by-blow the -blow detail and actually uses the word that is translated in Latin as rapture or rapere, right? Harpazo, the catching up of believers. So this is the day before that. So to read into the Olivet Discourse, rapture-esque type language is to completely miss the point. You, something that didn't even exist in the mind of men cannot be being revealed uh, here. And moreover, who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to the Jewish leaders. He's talking about the, the unbelieving leaders whom he had just said You'll not see me again until you cry, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Not one stone in this temple is going to be left upon another. It's going to be destroyed. A reference back to Daniel's prophecy that we looked at. So it's wholly Jewish. And speaking of Daniel's prophecy, this is the chart we looked at two weeks ago, or excuse me, two sessions ago. Uh, last week we did the uh, Q&A, so I guess it was two sessions ago. But I pointed out that everything in blue related to Daniel's 490-year prophecy is Jewish. But Daniel's own text demands a gap of time between the 483rd year and the start of the 484th year, or between the 69 weeks, remember a week is a Shabuah, a seven-year period, and the start of that final Shabuah, that final week, that final seven-year period. It demands a gap of time in which Daniel tells us the Messiah is going to be crucified, or he doesn't say crucified, he said cut off, and then the temple would be destroyed. And then the New Testament comes along and tells us there's some additional things that are going to happen during this gap of time, namely the church age, a mystery previously unknown, but fits perfectly with Daniel's plan. So we're living in this you know, gap of time between the 483rd year of Daniel's prophecy, when it ended, and before the start of the second, the, the, the 70th week, that final seven-year period. So far, it's been 2,000 years, roughly. We don't know how long it's going to be. Only the Lord knows that. Uh, but what Jesus is referring to is that final seven-year period for Israel. The, the, the disciples want to know, when is this kingdom going to come? You know, we've been waiting all this time. You know, they've been waiting, if you go back to David's promise in, in uh, uh, 2 Samuel 7, for 1,000 years by the time of the first century. We've now been waiting 3,000 years from that prophecy. Of course, if you go all the way back to Genesis 3.15 and uh, the Proto-Evangelium when, when, when God tells us that the seed of the woman would ultimately defeat Satan, we've been waiting for 6,000 years. Um, but they've been waiting a long time. They want to know when is this kingdom going to come? When is this prophecy of Daniel and all of these other prophecies of Zechariah and Isaiah and Ezekiel, when are they going to happen? And that's what the Olivet Discourse is about. It's not about the church. And so if you look at our end times chart, the Olivet Discourse is about this seven-year period, the 70th week of Daniel. 
And I'm going to show you uh, some parallels uh, as we go through this passage in Matthew 24 and 25 uh, that uh, you know, plainly show that, the, for example, the seal trumpets in Revelation 6 correspond exactly to what Jesus is saying in Matthew 24, verses 4 to 13. Uh, so this is what we're talking about. It's totally Jewish in nature. And so what I've done with this next chart is pointed out, of course, that the Olivet Discourse has nothing to do with the present church age. But if you overlay the passages from the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that give us Jesus' teaching on the end times, the Olivet Discourse, here's what you find. The first 14 verses of Matthew, we'll just use Matthew because that's where we're going to camp out, uh, are general signs of the entire seven-year period. Because remember, the disciples wanted to know, what are the signs? I mean, we thought you were going to come right away, we, and we, that's not speculation. We know for a fact that's what they thought, because four days earlier, as they stood on the outskirts of Jerusalem, the day before the triumphal entry, Luke chapter 19 tells us, because, quote, because they were near Jerusalem and the disciples thought the kingdom was to appear immediately, Jesus told them this parable, and then he records the parable of the Minas. So the Bible, under the authority of the inspiration of the Spirit, gives us what was in the minds of the disciples on Saturday, or Sunday, I guess it was. So we know they thought that the kingdom was going to come, and they're going, wait a minute, if the kingdom's not going to come now, if this temple's going to be destroyed, uh, when is it going to come? Help us out here, Lord. We don't understand. Give us some clarity. What are the signs of your coming? When will we know? And verses 1 to 14 give us general signs of the entire seven-year period. Then he kind of zeroes in, starting with the abomination of desolation in verse 15 of Matthew 24, and gives us detailed signs that lead us right up to the second coming. Uh, you know, the signs in the heavens, the lightning from the east to the west, the sign of the Son of Man appearing, and those types of things. And then the uh, rest of the, well, Matthew 24, 27 to 31, is the actual second coming. When Christ comes back, uh, he sends his angels to the four corners of the earth to regather the nation of Israel in belief in the land. They're not there in belief now. There has been a return to the land, which is wonderful. It's it's interesting. It could be prophetically significant. It sets the stage, but it doesn't fulfill prophecy. They are not there in belief. The fulfillment of Israel's return will be supernatural when they are supernaturally returned uh, to the land of Israel. Uh, and then in, in the rest of 24 and 25, it's not on the chart here, everything else is just application. It's in light of these signs and, you know, this is how I'm going to come back. He's now come back. And then he says, so, be ready. Be ready, nation of Israel. You missed me the first time. I'm about to go to the cross to pay the sins for the sins of the world. But I'm going to rise again. Then I'm going to go back to heaven and sit at the right hand of the throne of God. But then I'm going to come back again. And the next time I come back, pay attention and be ready. And the whole rest of 24 and 25 is all signs and illustrations and analogies about being ready. Yeah, Sally. Um, I know that God's word is true and what he says will happen. But doesn't he have the final say? He does, yeah, but he can't contradict himself. And he won't. Right. And he has the final say on the timing for sure. Yeah. And that's why it's fruitless for us to try to pick dates, right? 
Because, I mean, we're just going to... Not, not that would contradict his word. Oh, we'll never right, absolutely. But sure, there could be things in the kingdom and things down the road that are uh, consistent with Scripture that we don't know about. But absolutely, yeah, God is in control. But we can't separate the living incarnate word from the living written word. Jesus is a living incarnate word. This is a living written word. And, and this is everything God wants us to know. And um, so, yeah, good, good question. Any other uh, thoughts before we wrap up? This is a perfect stopping point to kind of lay the foundation, and then we'll get into the text uh, verse by verse, starting with chapter 24 next week. Any other questions or comments? All right. Well, thank you guys very much. We'll take a break, and we'll come back for worship here in uh, just a few moments.